0: For God so loved. I dare say that nearly every sermon, every sermon I've ever preached, has had that as either a direct theme or an underlying theme to everything I was saying in that in each particular sermon. For God so loved. It's been my experience that churches need to be reminded, that congregations need to be reminded, that people in the pews, whether it's your first time or you've been coming for 40 or 50 years, need to be reminded on a regular basis that God loves us. For God so loved. Is there a clearer statement in the Bible? Is there a clearer word that we can carry with us ever in our lives? For God so loved. I've preached something like 1,500 sermons or more, and by the way, God bless all the people who've had to sit through those sermons. But in those 1,500 sermons, oftentimes, this most of the time, maybe perhaps all of the time, this singular word has been the motivation. Oh, maybe I didn't quote John 3.16. Maybe it never came up in the, in the context of the sermon itself, but it was there just beneath the surface of, of my manuscript, just the, 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 the fuel, as it were, for my thoughts, empowering the sermon to move forward in faith. For God so loved. Now, sometimes there are some folks get confused by this verse. There are people that New Testament scholar Marcus Borg calls uh, people who think within a framework of Christianity as a heaven or hell sort of choice. Uh, Let's look at the verse up close and we'll we'll, we'll comment on this. Go ahead and put that verse there. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only child so that everyone who believes may not perish but may have eternal life. Now, Stuart, leave that up there for us for, for a moment. God gave God's only child so that everyone who believes. Here's where some folks get a little bit confused. They see that word believe, and they think that means you've got to believe in this certain particular way, and if you don't, you're going to be punished forever. You won't be given eternal life. You must believe this. If that was my framework, my theological understanding, this sermon would be titled, Believe or Burn. Yes, that was meant to be funny. It's okay to laugh. It's okay. Okay. But it's, it's a misunderstanding of the word. You see, in antiquity, to believe meant you trust. The, the more nuanced understanding of this word, as it's used in the New Testament especially, and even more especially in the Gospel of John, is that you were invited to trust that God loves you, to trust that God's love is there for you always. And in so doing, in that act of trust, you then discover something of what it means to experience life, eternal life, now. And let's, and let's talk about that phrase, eternal life, that's still up there before you. A- another way to understand that is the age to come. If you trust in God's love in your life, then you will already be participating in the age that is to come. It's, and I, uh, It's a word that is spoken about the future and the present. It's a future present, if you will. It's both then and now. If you believe and trust in the love of God given to you, then that love will empower you, encourage you, and challenge you and call you forward to give yourself away in love to the world. All right, you can take the verse down, thank you. That's the beauty and the power of this word before us on this day. Sometimes it is a challenge. Sometimes it's a sermon that comes with a challenge to challenge us to get out of our comfort zones, to find ways that we can act in love in the world. Sometimes it's a word of comfort spoken to folks who've been broken or wounded by their family, their friends, the world in, in some way. But always there is truth in those four words, for God so loved. And then what verse 17 does, the second verse that we heard this morning, what it does is it kind of underlines that idea of love. And again, people can get confused about that. Let's put it up here again for us to look at. Indeed, God did not send the child into the world to condemn. Do you hear how clear that is? Did not send to condemn. It's not about condemnation. But in order that the world might be saved, Sometimes people see that word saved and they get it confused with a, being, uh, being given a ticket to heaven or not receiving one to heaven to go somewhere else where it's very hot and you're tormented for, for eternity. No, no, and no. The Greek word for save is sozo. To be saved in the Bible is to experience salvation. To experience salvation is to experience renewal, re- re- redirection, new growth, new life. Think about this. In, in the book of Exodus, When the Hebrews escape slavery, it is said in the book that they experience salvation from slavery. Do you see what the word means in its richer, richer, deeper, nuanced context? It's not about who gets a ticket for heaven and who doesn't. It's about being saved today, renewed, redirected, given new life in this moment even now. It's a beautiful and marvelous promise given to all. It says to us that God wants to love us, God wants to bless us, God wants to save us, God wants to to give us new life. Not just in some far off eternity, but now, It's it's a future present. I love something that Madeline L'Engle uh, wrote. You, do you remember Madeline L'Engle? She wrote the, the book, A Wrinkle in Time, many, many children's books, many award-winning books. She was also something of a, a very accomplished lay theologian. Not somebody who was professionally trained in a seminary or anything like that, but her insights and thoughts are amazing. She says this about a belief in hell. To believe in hell is to show a lack of faith. It's to give more power to Satan than to God for God has the last word. Ms. Lengel's comment there is brilliant and spot on. To believe in hell is to have a lack of faith, is to give Satan more power than God. God promised in verses 16 and 17 of John chapter three to give God's love to the world, not to condemn, but to save. And that word is given not just to us, not just to Christians like us, not just to Christians in general, but to the world, for God so loved the world. It's a clear word, given to all of us, given to all. And one of the reasons God wants to make this clear, as I noted a moment ago, most of us, maybe all of us, at some point in life we'll experience woundedness, brokenness. We need hope. We need the hope that comes from the gift of love. George Ross was a good preacher in Akron, Ohio. I read a book about his life called, called Strong in the Broken Places, written by theologian Leonard Sweet. It's sort of a, a theological reverie uh, based on the life of, of, of Father Ross. Father Ross tells a story in. In, in this book about a time he was invited to a cocktail party. By the way, just so you know, cocktail parties are dangerous spaces for preachers. Just, let's just be clear about that. Inevitably, somebody, after they get a couple of drinks, wants to come over and, and ask me to explain the rapture in the book of Revelation and something like that. Please don't do that to me, ever. Well, he's at this party, and a woman comes over. She hasn't had anything to drink. She's fine. And she says, Father Ross, what should a sermon be? What should it be? I well, thought for a moment, and then he said, a sermon should be exegetically, theologically, and hermeneutically carefully written. He used a whole bunch of $50 seminary words like that and rambled on for about two or three minutes. He noticed her eyes were starting to glaze over, so he stopped talking. He took a breath, and he said, well, what do you think? What should a sermon be? She said, a sermon should be about hope. People in this world, they need hope. They need to believe that it's possible to love and be loved. Leonard Sweet, the one who writes this this story about Father Ross, says that what what the hope is centered on is the possibility that love will be made real in your life and mine because there's so much brokenness in the world. I never cease to be surprised when I see it. Among people in the pews, in the hallways, in offices and coffee shops, over meals and wherever else I run into God's children all over, there's so much brokenness and woundedness out there. I'll never forget a retreat I led when I was the youth director during my seminary days at Watauga Avenue Presbyterian Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. Now the proper way to pronounce that by the way is Watauga Avenue Presbyterian Church. Somebody asked me where where I was from and and they said, you sound like a Yankee. And somebody, before I could respond, somebody standing next to that person said, he's not a Yankee, he's from California. He's just weird. (laughs) Anyway, in that little church, in about the last month of my service, as the youth director with those kids. We held a retreat up in the mountains of North Carolina. Johnson City is way up in the upper east corner of of Tennessee, about an hour's drive up to the mountains of North Carolina, beautiful retreat center there. Our theme for the weekend was created me a clean heart. You might recognize it as a line from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. As you maybe can guess, it's my favorite psalm in the entire book, even more so than Psalm 23. It's a beautiful word. We use that for our theme for the weekend. We invited the kids to be open about their life experiences, what they were worried about, what they were excited about, that sort of thing. And throughout the weekend, we, we talked about most, every kid, I had 30 or 35 kids on this retreat, just about every one spoke about how hard life was for them. And let me be clear, these were kids, like kids from our, our, our church, like the kids, our young people who are going to Mexico. They're they're from comfortable, uh, affluent families, well-educated. All of them were were amazing. The Science Award winner at their high school was a member of my my youth group. The the, the, um, Math Award winner was a member there. I had several great musicians. Every senior in that year's senior class had received an academic scholarship to to the college they were accepted in. I mean, these these were like amazing kids. And yet, on this retreat, I heard them with tears in their eyes talk about their fears, their worries, anxieties, guilt, shame. Some of them said the expectations are so unreal. I just feel like I'm literally being bent over by the heavy expectations from my parents, my teachers, and so many others. Others said I'm never going to live up to whatever they think I ought to be, and others still, still others talked about how I'm being forced into a direction I don't want to go. My life is so confusing. It was Tearful moment after tearful moment. And then on Sunday, the last day of the retreat, at the end of our worship service, we sang a little chorus based on Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. And it was a baptism of tears. And when we were done, I reminded them, leaving this retreat, carry these words with you. There's only four. for God, so Them with you throughout your life and ask God to give you the courage you need to face whatever comes at you. It's the great philosopher Elie Wiesel who said, A broken heart is a heart that is the most alive, a wounded faith is the faith that is strongest. You remember Ernest Hemingway's famous line The world breaks us, everyone, and we are strongest in the broken places. Just before the verses we read today from chapter, John chapter three, verses 16 and 17, we meet someone who no doubt is broken and wounded. His name is Nicodemus. He's a religious leader in Israel. He comes to Jesus at night. I'll make a comment about the nighttime in a moment. He sees in Jesus a a, a realness, an authentic person. I know the word authentic is misused and sometimes overused and almost like a cliche, but it's true about Jesus. He is authentic. His his authority comes not from his advanced degrees, not from his experience, but from the experience that he has with the people, the regular people in the streets, in the pews like us. And Nicodemus wants a new life, a new beginning. Now, Now scholars talk about why he came at night. Some think he's coming because he's afraid. After all, in John chapter two, Jesus just turned over the temples, a politically da- the, the tables in the temple, a politically dangerous thing to do. He could be afraid for his life, that's a possibility. He also could be worried about his reputation. Jesus is a radical teacher, a new voice, causing a stir in Israel that's maybe that it too also John likes to play with images of light and dark and so maybe that's what John is doing here the way he tells the story he uses those images throughout his gospel yes possibly here's my angle I think Nicodemus has come at night because sometimes the most important conversations we have last long into the evening well after the sun has set There's been a couple of times that Julie and I have had amazing conversations about uh, something we're wrestling with in our family or some dream we have or some new thing that might happen for us together as a couple. Those happen almost always after the sun set, long into the night. I think Nicodemus is coming to look for a new life, for a new beginning, for new hope. Now, Jesus Jesus challenges him with this new idea of being born of the Spirit, and it's all, all kind of and interesting and, and mysterious, and he keeps saying to him, you, you, you Nicodemus, you Nicodemus, please you understand this, understand this. And then all of a sudden, the second person pronoun changes from singular, as he's talking directly to Nicodemus, to the plural. Does anyone know in English what the second person plural, pronoun plural is? Anybody know? Somebody? It's all y'all, it's all y'all, it's all y'all. I learned that in Tennessee, It's one of the things I learned there and it actually does work quite well. Do you see what happens in the story? Jesus is no longer talking just to Nicodemus, he's talking to all y'all, he's talking to everyone and that's why when he concludes and says, for God so loved the world, he's not talking just to Nicodemus, he's talking to everyone and John is now relaying that word to all of us. It's a powerful story. It happens in the night, in the dark. And let's be clear, Barbara Brown Taylor, who wrote the book, learning how to walk in the dark, says that new life begins in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, new life begins in the dark. It's a beautiful promise that no matter how dark your life might be right now, there's a possibility that new life is beginning, that something new is happening in your life. Learning to see in the dark is a blessing and a place where hope can begin. What Nicodemus discovers is that love is an action. A couple chapters later, he defends Jesus in a public trial. They've already convicted him without a trial at all, and he stands up and says to to his uh, co-leaders in the religious Uh, the religious leaders in the room, how can we convict this man? He's done nothing wrong. We haven't, we haven't done any kind of a trial. He's now in the light of day with courage leading his heart to act in the name of love in defense of his friend. Michael Curry, Bishop Michael Curry says love is an action. It's not just the the pounding of your heart. It's not just the warm beating of your heart. The, The little pity pat that your heart goes when you see the one you love. Love is an action. Love acts. Most oftentimes it acts on behalf of justice on behalf of renewal, on behalf of salvation. Bishop Curry tells a story about Fannie Lou Hamer, a name I hadn't discovered until I did a little reading this week. She was active in the civil rights movement. She was born one of 20 children to sharecroppers. Sharecropping back in the day was a de facto form of slavery, frankly. She, she contracted polio, which caused her to, to walk with a limp her, her entire life, but despite that limp, she worked hard with the family. She worked hard with the other children, with her mother and father, picking as much cotton as she could. She dropped out of high school even, so she could pick more and work harder for her parents. She got into her 20s and discovered that black people had the right to vote. She'd never known anyone who'd voted before. She didn't know black people could vote. The people with skin like hers be allowed to vote so she went and registered to vote she failed what was then called a literacy test it was a simple sham to keep black people from voting is what it was but she fought hard she never gave up she walked everywhere she needed to walk on that bad leg to do everything she could to give her people the right to vote she was shot by the kkk she was wrongly arrested and beaten and thrown into prison more than once but she never refused in the name of love to fight for justice In 2017, she was honored at the the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives for her great work fighting for her people. Bishop Curry says, it was love in action. Nicodemus has learned this lesson as well. Fast forward to John 19, almost the end of his gospel. Jesus has just died on the cross Gathered there at the foot of the cross are Jesus, some of Jesus' best friends, most of them the women that were his followers. But there were two men there as well, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Think of this. He's been executed by the state. To be there and to show that you're his friend puts you in danger. You might be taken and killed as well. But Joseph and his friend Nicodemus They care for their friend, their rabbi, Jesus. It's it's Nicodemus who takes a hold of his body, anoints him with fragrant oils, carefully wraps the body in linen cloths, and then carries it to the tomb where it will lie in the dark for three days waiting for new life through the power of love to emerge. My friends, I've only preached one sermon in my entire career and every single one of them has hinged, has been fueled by these four words. For God, so love.